a new chapter, which is chapter 24, and this comes after a very exhilarating chapter 23, and this is going to be the perspective, we were looking at the fusion and the joy that happens in Torah study, and this is going to show us what happens when somebody goes against Hashem's will. So it's, it's going to be, uh, it's a tough pill to swallow, but at the same time, hi, Welcome. it does, hi, welcome. <laughs> it doesn't help anybody to not know the truth. So, you know, the guy is going on the freeway and he sees the sign and it says clearance, 10 foot 11. So him and the truck driver and his friend get out and they measure their truck and it's 11 feet. And then they look around, they say, there's not a cop in sight. Should we go for it? (laughs) It's not about a cop in sight. You got to know the reality so you don't smash your truck. So we can say, well, we don't want to disappoint the truck driver. We're not going to tell him how low the clearance is. You're not helping anybody. So at the same time, we could say, you know, it's hard for us to understand what happens when a person transgresses Hashem's will, but we're not helping anybody. It gives us clearer vision. And in fact, that's what we're really aiming for in these chapters is clearer vision. Because if you remember, we're in the middle of this unit trying to get in touch with our deepest self. Because Moshe Rabbeinu told us that that this Torah that I'm commanding to you is so close to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. It's actually very close for us. It's very easy and within reach that we can serve Hashem with love and with fear. And so what does that mean? It's so easy for us. It doesn't seem like it's that easy for us. So after the first 17 chapters, the Altar Rebbe now introduced us to a new way to tell us, hey, this is not something you even have to create. You have it already within you. And I'm going to tell you something about you. There's a million different ways to describe a Jewish person, but this is how the Altar Rebbe defines a Jewish person, person in chapter 18. He says, a Jew is somebody who, when it comes to a moment of test and faith of Hashem, where he is forced to choose between Hashem or a reality that denies him, a Jew is somebody who is ready to sacrifice his life, then bow down to the idol. And this is something that history has proven. In the Middle Ages, you know how many Jewish people who were living an uh, irreligious, non-observant life, and all of a sudden they said, just bow down to the idol. And they said, no, they'd rather die. It doesn't even make sense. It makes no sense at all. And that's why in chapter 19, the Altar said, that's what teva means. Teva means nature. <coughs> nature is something that doesn't even have, you can't explain it. It's unexplainable. Just, and it said that nerhavaya nishmas adam, the, the candle of God is the soul of man. It's just like the flame is constantly trying to escape the wick to its source where it's going to lose its identity. That's the Jewish soul. It makes no sense. We can't explain it logically, but that's the Jewish soul constantly trying to unite with Hashem. So now we understand something new about ourselves. It's not something new we have to create. We have already within us this such deep love for Hashem that we would die for Him. So how come we live a life that doesn't express that all the time? How does a person ever come to do an Avera or miss an opportunity to do a mitzvah? because we live in this space where we're not in touch with our deepest self. So the altar has been trying to put us into this space of our deepest self so that the same visceral allergic reaction we would have to somebody telling us to bow down to an idol, God forbid, we should reach that same allergic, knee-jerk, runaway reaction anytime confronted by an Avera. So this is where we're trying to reach. We're trying to reach that the idea that every Avera, every sin is tantamount to idol worship. It's, it's hard. Remember we said that in, or, in order to understand this idea, we had to understand the idea of the unity of Hashem. 
that not only is Hashem the only God, He's actually the only reality. He's actually the only existence that there is. And once we understand that, we can now come to this deep identification that every mitzvah perpetuates His unity and every avera denies His unity. And when we start equating in our gut, not just logically, but in our gut, we start equating a transgression with idol worship, we'll have the same reaction. It's going to be an allergic reaction. You're never going to want to do it. You're going to want to run away. It feels terrible. So, so uh, we're going to get to the chapter now. Chapter 24. In chapter 18, the Alter Rebbe began to explain how it is very near and accessible to each of us to serve Hashem out of a feeling of love and awe by means of awakening the hidden love latent in us all. To clarify how this hidden love can lead to the observance of all the mitzvot, the Alter Rebbe proceeded to discuss the relationship of all the mitzvot to the precept, to the precept of belief in God's unity and to the prohibition against idolatry. Mm-hmm. The unity of Hashem, oh sorry, and I should put some out to you. The unity of Hashem, he explained, means not only that there is but one God, but rather that God is the only existing being, and all else is contained within him. Conversely, idolatry does not necessarily mean a denial of God's existence or of his being unique. Any assertion that something exists beyond and separate from God also constitutes idolatry. In chapter 23, the Alter Rebbe went on to state that through Torah and mitzvot, in which the divine will stands revealed, one reaches a perfect unity with God. In this chapter, he explains that a transgression has exactly the opposite effect of a mitzvah. Whereas a mitzvah joins one to God, a transgression severs one from him. Whereas a mitzvah attests to God's unity, a transgression implies idolatry. And that's what we were figuring out before class. We had a pre-class question series, and it was, how does a mitzvah perpetuate God's unity? A mitzvah is something that, what is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is Hashem's innermost desire. And what is the performance of the mitzvah? It is the innermost garment to his innermost will. Just like our body is our innermost garment to our soul, our body having, once it's attached to the soul, it doesn't have a will of its own. It simply is there to express the soul. Our performance of a mitzvah is simply there to express Hashem's will. And when we're in that mitzvah space, we are in this space where pre-tzimtzum, we are pre the space that there has been any concealment of Hashem. At this space, we give total revelation to Hashem's will. Now, with this high, let's see what happens when God forbid somebody chooses to disobey and violate Hashem's will. Vizel umazeh. I said, I don't want to know what's going to happen. So that's, wait, that's our first reaction. Our first reaction, one second. Stay on the high. Our first reaction is, I don't want to know. But that's the same thing as saying, I don't want to know that there's bleach in my cup. Right. It's not going to help us any. I don't want to know. It's not going to help us any. And I want to tell you something. I, I, I recently listened to a share where um, the rabbi referenced a, a discussion from the Talmud. Discussion from the, uh, a story from the Talmud. There's a, a section in the Talmud that speaks about the argument, the debate between Rabbi Shub and Hanania, who was one of the wisest, sharpest Jewish sages, and Save de Veasuna, the elders of Athens. They weren't debating in Rome. They had very cryptic discussions. There's a lot of commentary on the discussions that they had. Like, for example, if a chick dies in the egg, where does the soul leave? 
from where does the soul leave? And he says, from the same place where it came. It sounds like, what? Like, what are they talking about? He says, how do you, they asked him, how do you harvest a field full of knives? And he said, with the horn of a donkey. And they said, does a donkey have horns? And he said, does a field grow knives? So one of these questions were, if a woman, if a man seeks to marry a woman and she rejects him, should he seek higher? No, they said. He should seek lower. Seek higher? That means that if, he, if this woman rejects him, the family says, we don't, we don't want you. So should he seek to marry somebody of higher prominence than this woman? No. He should, the, 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 the elders of Athens said he should seek to marry a woman of lower status. And, oh, now I remember you. You came before. Sorry. Welcome. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and, so, um, and so he said, no. Take a peg and try to knock it into the wall. If it doesn't go into the wall from a lower space, try to knock it in higher and it's going to go. What does this mean? So the Ahav Yisrael of Apta, Rabbi Avram Yeshua Heschel, he was one of the few giants by that name, and he was called the Ahav Yisrael, the lover of Jewish people. He was the rev of the city of Apta. He was a Hasidic master, and he explains this passage in one way in the Talmud, and he says like this. Look at Moshe's address of the Jewish people. He says to them, Ha'azinu ha'shemayim va'adabera v'sishma ha'aretz imrefi. Listen, O heavens, and I will speak, and the earth will hear the words of my mouth. What was he doing? He was the leader of the Jewish people. He wanted to get the people to do teshuva. Teshuva meaning, not meaning remorse, teshuva meaning beyond that. Teshuva meaning seeking the closest relationship with Hashem. He was trying to exhort the people to have a close relationship to Hashem. But sometimes they speak to the people and the people are not receptive to the message because they're too steeped in materialism. So what, what method does he take? He takes the method of speaking then higher. Speaking not to the body, but speaking to the soul. And this is the, wor- the meaning of the words of Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu saying, listen, speak, heavens, I'm spe- listen heavens, I'm speaking, and then the earth will hear the words of my mouth. Speak to the neshama, and then the body's going to listen. And so I heard a story from Rav Shalom Mordechai Rabashkin, who was miraculously released from jail two years ago from a whole, a whole saga, and they, put him, they imprisoned him, they said, supposedly for 27 years. They told a story of his family coming to visit. He left his home when his son was, one of his sons was four years old. This is four years later. The family's coming to visit him in prison. This little four-year-old who hasn't had his daddy at home for four years is now eight, and he's sitting around the table, and he sees a man with a yarmulke going to the vending machine and buying two ice creams for him and a visitor. And so he says to his father, Tati, I want that ice cream. And his father says, no, you can't have that ice cream. That ice cream is kosher, but it's not chal of Yisrael. And our family is careful with chal of Yisrael. So the little boy is throwing a tantrum. Yes, in, t- in prison. The little boy starts throwing a tantrum. I want ice cream. I want ice cream. And meanwhile, the, the um, prison guard comes over and says, hey, this is not a library. This is a prison. If you don't get your kid to be quiet, you guys are all going to have to go home. So, so first he tries to explain, this is not our standards of kashru. You, we can't have it. The little boy is not listening. And he says, okay. 
they're trying so hard to get the kid to be quiet because the whole family visit's going to be home. So they say, <laughs> if you wait till we get home, mommy's going to buy you two ice creams. The little boy's not budging. If you wait till we get home, mommy's going to buy you three ice creams. Nothing to talk about. And meanwhile, the prison guard is eyeing them. Says, listen, he's going to kick us out of here. Mommy's going to be so sad. If you wait till we get home, three ice creams, four ice creams, they get to ten ice creams, and the kid says no. (laughs) Then he says, I'm taking a different path. And he says, listen, if you wait till you get home, Hashem's going to be happy, and you're going to be happy. And all of a sudden, the little kid switches the subject, starts asking like a question about something that happened at school. Subject over. And that reminded me exactly of this teaching of the Ayah of Yisrael, that if it's not working to speak to the body, to speak to the common sense, speak to the soul, and then the body's going to listen. So that's exactly what we're trying to achieve here with these chapters. You're going to say, oh my gosh, this is going to be very overwhelming to hear what happens when a person does an Avera. I don't want to know. On the other hand, you really do want to know, because this is what we're trying to trigger. We're trying to trigger our reaction, that we would want to stay so far away from anything that separates us from Hashem. So, with this in mind, since everything in the realm of holiness has its counterpart in the unholy realms of the Sitra Ahura, there is also an unholy counterpart to the observance of the mitzvot and the Torah study, which would produce the union with Hashem. Their counterpart is... The 365 prohibitions stated in the Torah and all the rabbinical prohibitions. Since they are contrary to and very opposite of Hashem's will and wisdom, they represent total and complete separation from Hashem's unity and oneness. So mitzvah represents fusion with Hashem. Transgression represents total separation from Hashem's unity and oneness. So what are the things that that represent total separation? They are the 365 prohibitions stated in the Torah and all the rabbinical prohibitions. So let's just speak about rabbinical prohibitions for a second to understand how they separate us from Hashem's will. What do we say before lighting the Hanukkah menorah? Anybody? Which blessing? Right, and what's the beginning of the blessing? Baruch atah Hashem, Elokeinu melech haolam, Asher kiddishanu b'mitzvotah v'tivanu l'hadlik ner Hanukkah. And some people say shel Hanukkah. No, we don't say shel, but some people say shel. There's different versions of the blessing, but the beginning is the same. Blessed are you, Hashem, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to light the Hanukkah candles. Anybody see the commandment of lighting Hanukkah candles in the Torah? No. no. <laughs> so what is this blessing? Where did Hashem command us? So, but it's a rabbanon. But where, why are we listening to the rabbis? Because there is a mitzvah in the Torah that says, from what they tell, do not light sasuru share. You shall not deviate from the path what they instruct you, left or right. So when, the, when our sages made a certain prohibition, they said you may not do something like this, this becomes against the will of Hashem. Like for example, 
Hashem forbade us to cook meat and milk together and to eat this mixture. Our Chachamim said, Hashem said, Hashem said, you should make a mishmeres, you should make a, a safeguard for my laws. And so the Chachamim said, if we allow people to eat chicken and milk, they will come to eat meat and milk. So our sages said, you may not have chicken and milk either. Once they said that, this has become forbidden. So whenever the rabbis have made a prohibition, this too becomes against the will of Hashem based on the prohibition of that you shall not deviate from that which they instruct you left or right. Okay? So what is an avera? What is a, a transgression? A transgression in its purest form is a representation of a representation of a total separation from Hashem's oneness and unity. What else is a total separation from Hashem's they are the same as the Sitra Achra and the Klipa, which are called idolatry and other gods, since the internal aspect of the divine will is concealed from them, as explained above. That they receive their life force from the hinder part of the divine will, from the level of Achorayim, and for this reason they are called Elohim Achorayim, other gods. Okay, so uh, an Avera. A transgression represents separate, total separation. And remember what we learned about the forces of unholiness? They represent total separation from Hashem. They are, they, they are called Elohim Acherim because they receive their nurture from the hindermost part of Hashem's will. Hashem wants them to be here because He needs them for a purpose, a freedom of choice. But yet, He hates them. And they represent something that stands and says, I have a separate existence from Hashem. There's Hashem and there's me. Something that says there's Hashem and then there's me. Sure, there's Hashem, but there's something outside of Hashem. That's already the other side. That means separation from Hashem. That is idol worship. So idol worship is separation from Hashem. And guess what any transgression is? It's a separation from Hashem's oneness and unity. Exactly the same way. Can you re- I can't remember what Sitra Achra is. Sitra Achra means the other side. So it's the side that's opposed to the side of holiness. There's the Sitra de Kedusha, the side of holiness, and there's the Sitra Achra, the opposite of holiness. V'chein, gimel levushe ha-nefesh shemiklipas nega shebi Yisrael, shehe machshava dibur omaisa hamubashim b'shastal leisase ta'eraisa odurabbanan. Just as the forbidden actions themselves represent separation from godliness, so too the three garments of a Jew's animal soul, which stems from the klipa of Noga, namely the thought, speech, and action that are clothed in it, meaning that, that think, speak, or act in the violation of the 365 prohibitions or any of the rabbinic injunctions. I'm going to finish this thought, I'm going to go back to explain it. And similarly, the essence of the soul itself, which is clothed in its three garments, since it is the soul itself, after all, which thinks, speaks, and acts through its garments, the faculty of thought, speech, and action, all of them become completely united with this Sitra Achra and the Klippa called Avodazara, idolatry. So when a person acts in violation of Hashem's will, his, the thought that he thinks that's against Hashem's will, the words that he says that are against Hashem's will, the act that he takes against Hashem's will, so these are the garments of the animal soul. 
the animal soul is expressing itself through one of these garments, is enclosing itself in this act. When it enclothes itself in this thought, this speech, or this act, at that time, they become, they become united with the Sitra Akhra and the Klippa at that time. So a few things I want to say here. First of all, in this act, we're going to explain further on in the chapter, the divine soul does not become united with the Klippa. That does not happen, but the animal soul is becoming united with the Klippa. The divine soul at this time is in a state of exile. But during this act, the animal soul and its garments become completely united with the Klippa and Avaita Zara. Now, we're going to go into a little bit of a theoretical discussion. I'm going to try to articulate it as best as I could. And if you have any questions, please. Fuses with the Sitraha. Yes. Instead of fusing with the others. With holiness. So isn't that devastating? Yeah. Absolutely devastating. But now I have a question for you. Okay? We are in this entire discussion once we've understood the concept of the unity of Hashem. Remember that the altar said, in order to understand what the statement of the Zohar, that the, the, the first two commandments, I am God, your God, and that you shall have not, not have any other gods, are the encapsulation of the entire Torah. And really, every positive commandment is an expression of, I am God, your God. And every transgression is of a violation of, you shall have no other gods. We needed to first understand the concept of the unity of Hashem. Now, why do we have to understand the concept of the unity of Hashem in order to understand how every Avera is like idol worship? We can frame it in different terms. I'll tell you a story from the Tosefta. So the Tosefta says like this. One time, Rabbi Reuven stayed in Tiberia for Shabbos. And Pelasphus found him, and he said to him, what is the most hateful thing unto the Creator? And Rabbi Reuven said, it is he who denies the one who created him. Who is he who denies the one who created him? He is somebody who desecrates the Shabbos. He is somebody who does not honor his parents. He is somebody who covets, because a person does not violate any of these commandments without denying the one who gave them. So really, just from this aspect of knowing that every mitzvah, is an, every transgression is an act of rebellion, we can equate it with idol worship already. Why do we have to understand the concept of the unity of Hashem? And I'll tell you another story. The story is of the Chaydushi Harim. He was once collecting money to ransom captives, and he comes to this wealthy Jew who's not observant to his office to ask him for money, and this prominent wealthy fellow is in the middle of lunch. And what is he eating? Unfortunately, he's eating a ham sandwich. So what does the Rebbe tell him? He says, Zum appetit, hearty appetite. And the man looks at him and he says, Rebbe, do you know what I'm eating? And he said, because I know what you're eating, that's why I'm wishing you happy, hearty appetite. Because I want you to be a mummer late avain. That means somebody who is violating Doing, committing a transgression just because of his own personal satisfactions and not a mummer lahachis, somebody who violates Hashem's will in order to anger him. So now we're looking at a transgression and on one hand we're saying it's equivalent to idol worship. 
On the second hand, we're saying there's a difference, really. Like this guy, for example, is not so bad if he's doing it just to satisfy his own desires, but not in order to anger Hashem. So, and that's why us in our own lives, we differentiate between certain averas. It's like a little bit of gossip. What's the big deal? Just a little bit of gossip. No, it's not a little bit of gossip. It's idol worship. But why don't you have that visceral reaction, the same reaction that you have to idol worship? And that's because we come to differentiate between the act of idol worship and any other avera. Why? The act of idol worship in and of itself, the idol, the idol represents denial of Hashem. That's what the idol is. It's a physical manifestation of this terrible act of rebellion. What is the ham sandwich? The the ham sandwich was an act of consumption. Inherently tied up with this act of consumption is rebellion against Hashem. But they're not, we don't, we still separate. We say there's the act of consumption, and then there's the act of rebellion, which happens to be the byproduct of him eating the ham sandwich. When we study the concept of the unity of Hashem, we don't make this differentiation anymore. Because what what is idol worship? It's a physical manifestation of. represents total separation from Hashem's oneness and unity. And what is any Avera? Once we understand that that idol worship means cause an act of separation, once we understand that idol worship means that there's another existence besides Hashem, not just that there's another God besides Hashem, that for sure, we know that there's no other God besides Hashem. You shall have no other gods means you shall have no other gods besides Hashem means more than that. You should recognize that Hashem is the only existence. Ain't od milvado. Not only is he the only God, he is the only existence, and there's no other reality besides for Hashem. So now, the act of the Avera itself is like an idol now. The act of the Avera represents total separation from Hashem. What's happening when, what happens when a person serves an idol, God forbid? A person serves an idol, they are taking this thing that represents total heresy in Hashem, they're clinging to it, and they're submitting themselves to it. That's the act of idol worship. What's happening when a person does a transgression? They're taking something that represents total separation from Hashem, just like the idol. They're clinging to it. See how the animal, the animal soul and its garments are clinging to it? They're fusing with it. They're submitting themselves to it. Exactly the same thing as idol worship. When you understand that, you would never want to do anything wrong. You would never want to do anything against Hashem's will. Just like you have this visceral reaction to run away from an idol, even at the price of your life, you should have the same reaction at anything that is in violation to Hashem's will, based on the concept of the unity of Hashem. Okay, so this is what happens when a person does an avera. I'm sorry, I need a I don't see one anywhere. Oh, oh, there's one right there. Okay. Thank you so much. Great. Oh, sure. Perfect. That works. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. I'm Sorry. Okay. So, in the act of in the act of, of an avera, the animal soul and its garments becomes one with the klipa of avodizara, and not, furthermore, the light ella shebetelim utefelim eleha. Not only are they united with the klipa and thus equal to it, but furthermore, they become secondary and subordinate to it and much lower and debased than it. Okay, so first we're saying 
that in the act of an avera, in the act of transgression, mm-hmm. the animal soul becomes completely united. It and its garments becomes completely united with this klipa that is called a vaidazara. Okay, so in every act of transgression, there is this fusion, unfortunately, that's happening with the animal soul where it's clinging to the klipa. But now goes even a step further. Not only are they clinging to it, but they actually become lower and more debased than the klipa itself. And there's two expressions here, if you look at it. There's two clauses. It says, and then, first of all, they become secondary and subordinate to it. How did they become secondary and subordinate to it? Because they have chosen to be the receiver on the receiving end of the klipa. At the time that they indulge this act of transgression, they now choose choosing to receive their energy from the klipa, and so thus they become lower than the klipa. And not only are they lower than the klipa, but they actually become more debased than the klipa. Debased than the klipa because, as the Alter Rebbe is going to say coming up, the klipa actually never rebels against Hashem. But the person who transgresses rebels against Hashem. Mm. So they're even lower than the klipa. The thought is going to be developed. So I'll wait for questions until we finish the thought. Kihi eina milubeshes beguf chumri. Viaida'as es ribaina veina meredes bai liv al puulasa bemeshlachas malachi raim shala. Shalai beshluchusay shalmaka in baruchas vishalam. For the klipa is not clothed in a corporeal body and hence is more exposed to the divine light. It knows its master and does not rebel against him, God forbid, by any independent act of sending its evil messengers other than in the service of God. Any evil act of the Sitra Achra is performed only in the service of God. Thus, the klipot are not clothed in a body, cannot rebel against Hashem's will. Only the animal soul clothed in a human body can do so. Hence, it is even lower than the klipa. Hence, it is even lower than the klipa. There's a statement from quoted in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, that there's no greater concealment than the body. The klipa, at the end of the day, is spiritual. It knows its source. So although it, it is evil, it knows where it comes from. An animal soul clothed in a human body doesn't even recognize its source. And it has the power to rebel against Hashem. Now, this is really the craziest thing. We have to think about this for a minute. The klipa never rebels against Hashem. The only being in all of the universes that actually can defy Hashem's will is the human being. So when a human being violates a prohibition, they are not only clinging to the klipa and becoming lower than the klipa, receiving from the klipa, submitting themselves to the klipa, they now take on a character of a lower quality than the klipa itself. Because the klipa itself never denies, never defies Hashem's will. I mean, the, 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 they say, the, it says, they never send their evil messengers other than in the service of God. So they do bad things. But the bad things that they do is as if the will of Hashem, God forbid. Does Hashem desire evil? No, he hates evil. We spoke about this before. He hates evil. It's just a necessary part of the framework of this world to enable freedom of choice. Do you know what the Talmud says? The Talmud says that when the, the temple was destroyed, Hashem was crying. Hashem was crying, but who allowed for the destruction of the temple? 
Do you know what the prophet Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, God forbid, do you know what the prophet Yirmiyahu says about Nebuchadnezzar? He calls him Avdi, my servant. How is the evil Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the holy temple called Avdi, my servant? Because although what he did was evil, it was unfortunately the will of Hashem that was necessary for the framework of the world. How do we know what is and what isn't the will of Hashem when the, evil is done? The Torah tells us what's, what we're not allowed to do. You're saying any, any evil that happened in this world, it was by the permission of Hashem. The, purpose, the person that perpetrates evil is acting as if on his own accord. He is now defying the will of Hashem. So, Klippa is so evil, and yet, it's hard to imagine, but it never does anything against the will of Hashem. And that's why Nebuchadnezzar is called Abdi, my servant, because he destroyed the base of Mekdash. Now, again, we're going to also reference Bilam, and we're going to say that he never... In his, spirit, in his capacity as a prophet, never defied the will of Hashem. Is Nebuchadnezzar considered a holy person? No, he's considered evil, he is wicked. He is a person who defied the will of Hashem. But in the destruction of the temple, in carrying out Hashem's will, he was like Hashem's messenger. Is he accountable? This is very important because it gets confusing. Is he accountable? He's 100% accountable. The evil that was perpetrated at the end of the day, you know, like somebody wrongs you, right? So, what happened over here? They did something bad. So let's say, you know, somebody was robbed $5, right? So there's two things over here. There is the fact that the person was robbed $5. That was the will of Hashem. Then there was the person who robbed $5. They went against the will of Hashem. They did not have to rob the $5. The fact that the person would be missing their $5, that was Hashem's will. The fact that the person was the one who perpetrated the evil, that was against Hashem's will. But still, it doesn't, um, if it was supposed to be that they lose $5, and it was Hashem's will, and this guy did it. Because this guy was not acting in the interest of Hashem's will. Hashem has many messengers. He did not have to be the messenger. That wasn't the point. Hashem said, don't steal. He went against Hashem's will. But he was the messenger. He was the messenger, and, and he was an evil messenger of his own accord. He went against Hashem's will. He wasn't doing it. And he, by the way, even the klipa, when they perpetrate evil, they don't have in mind to obey Hashem's will. That's not... We're going to discuss while more fully <laughs> while they're doing it. This is an example that I heard from... I'm Rabbi Shalom Chaim Deitch, he's a Rosh Yeshiva in, in Israel. He says like this. Now, not to make the policemen or the parking enforcements like the bad guys, but the parking enforcements and the policemen, they know why they're working. They're working so that our city should be a civil place, right? That's why we hire policemen and that's why we hire uh, uh, parking, whatever they call them, the parking enforcement people. Otherwise, the place will be chaos. It's going to be a zoo, right? Your block driveway will always be blocked. It'll be like New York. Yeah. <laughs> Double parking. <laughs> so, so we have these people in order to keep life civil, and right? And they even know that. They know that's why they're hired. Now, when they're giving you that parking ticket, is that what they have in mind? Not usually. They really take the pleasure in giving you that ticket sometimes. <laughs> 
And that's like the forces of evil. They know. They caught a fish. That's their job. That's their job. This is just as a metaphor, okay? So, so there's some good ones and there's some bad ones. We're talking about the bad ones, okay? So this is the forces of evil. They know why they're doing their job. They know that this is the act of Hashem, but they do, do they do it saying, this is the act of Hashem, this is the will of Hashem? No. They, they start taking pleasure, like that parking guy who got you. That's, that's it. So they're, they're bad. They're, we can't think of them as good. The klipa is bad. But yet, <laughs> they never rebel against Hashem. Some people need to make a living. So that's right. Some that people need to make like, a clean they living. Yes. It's very hard. It's not that yeah, they want imagine. to do it. That's a job. So yeah. this is more as a metaphor. This is just as a metaphor to understand. They have quotas that they need to fill. They have quotas that they need to fill. But in any event, in any event, uh, the point is that although the klipa... Um, knows its master and never rebels against its master. It's not like this really good servant. You know the story, I don't know which one it was, but one of the Hasidic masters when he was a little boy, dogs are bothering me, I'm so sorry, just disturbing my concentration. One of the Hasidic masters when he was a little boy was reprimanded by his father and he said, you shouldn't have listened to your Yetzirah. Take a tip from the Yetzirah. He does his job. You should be doing your job like the Yetzirah does his job. And he said, no, Tati, you can't compare because my Yetzirah doesn't have a Yetzirah. (laughs) (laughs) My evil inclination doesn't have an evil inclination to stop him from doing his job. So that's the difference between the klipa. The klipa doesn't have somebody stopping him. He never rebels against Hashem. He knows his source and he does not deny his source. So did Bilam say, I cannot violate the word of God. Sure. Does this apply to Jews and non-Jews, all this? Or this yes. Jews? Yes, no. Even, like, we have to dif- even when we speak about Bilam, look, although Bilam was a klipa clothed in a body, yet when he spoke for the spiritual klipa within him, meaning the holy prophetic power with which he wished to curse the Jewish people, he said, I cannot violate, between, I cannot violate the word of God. We have to differentiate between Bilam the klipa, the spiritual power, the prophet, and Bilam the person. <laughs> Bilam the person, the Talmud tells us that he was a very immoral person and he, um, he went against the seven Noahide laws. So as a person, he was violating the will of God. But when it came to his power of prophecy to curse the Jewish people, he said, that's it, I put my hands up, I surrender. Hashem doesn't let me, I cannot violate the word of God. As a, an expression of the klipa of Bilam, he could not violate the word of God. Although the klipot are called avodazara, idolatry, which is a denial of God, yet they refer to him as the God of gods, indicating that they do not deny him completely. The klipa recognizes that Hashem is God. But what's the problem with the klipa? That they consider themselves to be a, a separate existence, an existence apart. On the other hand, They cannot violate God's will, for they know and perceive that He is their life and sustenance, since they derive their nurture from the hindermost aspect of the divine will which encompasses them. Can I ask, saying 
convey it's rather than an energy it's an actual like a negative an angel kind of existence or you know so we're calling they as in the forces of uh, the clipas yeah okay. so but they can be an evil angel I mean, in fact, you know, in Eov, when it speaks about Hashem's ministering angels coming to him, and it says, coming around him, and it says, and among them was the Satan, the Satan. Mm-hmm. And he's considered one of Hashem's angels and servants. Well, so, his best worker, actually. So, <laughs> she so, so hard, so hard for us to, to hear that. But so there are the angels, there are the forces, any, any, any of the spiritual energies which represent... Um, the opposite of holiness, which represents not fulfilling the Shem's will, which represents perpetration of evil. And the klipa of Bilam was to seek out and scrutinize and try to find fault with the Jewish people. That was the spiritual force. That was the energy behind, the, the, instead of the person Bilam, the prophet Bilam, his energy was to try to find fault in the most exacting way with the Jewish people. So he represented a force. So when we say they, we mean forces of evil. And it's good to have in mind. Like, you know, when you start like trying to nitpick and find fault, think this is really evil. This is like, this is like Bilam. This is Bilam's force. It's trying to be exacting and try to find fault. Yes, thank you. Okay, so one second. So going back. So these forces of evil, the klipa, the sitra achra, cannot violate God's will because they know and perceive that he is their life and sustenance since they derive their nurture from the hindermost part of the divine will which encompasses them. So we have a question about this. These forces of evil, they know where their divine life force comes from. How do they then act in the way of evil? And so you have to remember what we learned previously, that where do they get their life force from? They get their life force from the hindermost part of Hashem's will. Hashem brings them into existence, not because He wants them in and of themselves, because He wants them for some other reason. So that there is the possibility of freedom of choice, right? So because Hashem doesn't actually like them, He actually hates them, but He brings them into existence anyway, and they get their energy from this hindermost part, they don't have a direct relationship with Hashem in a way of when you really want something. Think about when you're giving something to somebody you don't want and you throw it over your shoulder. That was the example we gave. There's no relationship there. There's no, there's no, um, ident- no connection, thank you. There's no connection. So that's how it is with the Klippa and Sitra Ahura. They know that their life force is from Hashem. But it is in a way of admission. They admit that their life force is from Hashem. But it's not in a way that it affects them. It's not like Hashem is the master and so now I only want to do good things. No. I know that Hashem is my master. I know that nothing can be done without Hashem. That's how they feel. But it doesn't make them want to do good. They still have this thing that I am in existence for myself. And they, feel, they get actually derive pleasure in the perpetration of evil. Is this Jews and non-Jews? Is, is what Jews and non-Jews? Were they... No, that they're going against God's So here we're not speaking about people, we're speaking about forces. The forces of evil know where they get their life force from. These energies, we don't see them because we live in a physical world and we are not able to see them. And as we referenced from the story of Bilam, in fact, if we were able to see these kind of creatures, the human being would lose their mind. So we cannot see them. But these forces of evil, these energies know where they ultimately come into being from. They come into being because Hashem has brought them into existence. They never rebel against Hashem. But a person, Jew or non-Jew, 
who perpetrates evil is going against the will of Hashem. And so in doing so, besides the fact that they cling to these forces of evil, they become united with the force of evil, they are actually lower and more debased than the forces of evil. Because the forces of evil never go against Hashem's will. But the human being who transgresses is actually in violation of Hashem's will. Human being is the only creature in all the universes that actually has the power of doing against Hashem's will. And that's because when a person chooses to do the right thing, his act is all the more powerful because he had the choice to do wrong and he chose to do good. That makes his act more powerful. Whereas a good angel, if he does good, he's wonderful, but you can't compare him to a person who struggles. So I'm going to wrap up what we said until now and I'll open for questions. We said that it's one opposite the other. Just like a mitzvah represents total fusion with Hashem, an avera, a transgression, represents total fusion with a kliba that is called avaydazara, idol worship. When a person transgresses a sin, when he does, does a violation of the commandments, his animal soul and the garments that he uses in which he invests in the sinful act become totally fused with the klipa and the sitrachar. And so that's one thing. They become totally fused with it. Not only that, as we move further, we saw that they become even lower and more debased than the klipa and the sitrachar. Because the klipa and the sitrachar never rebel against Hashem. And the person who violates Hashem's will is actually going against Hashem. So we're going to close now for questions. Hashem has control over these evil forces? Absolutely. Oh. (laughs) Thank God. There's a few he should have worked on. (laughs) You know what? Your question is is as old as... Like in Germany. Exactly. Yeah. How about today with anti-Semitism and everything that's going on? So it's all part of the divine plan. All part of the divine plan. Do we understand it? No, we don't understand it. This is one of the things. Maish Rabbeinu asked Hashem. He, he wanted to know. Why do, good things, why do bad things happen to good people? We don't know the answer for that. And honestly, we don't know, want to know the answer. We just want to know that it's all good. There should only be good things happening to good people. Isn't it when you're, when you're doing some, something and you're uniting with the klipa that it's giving it vitality also? That like too. Yeah. Yes, because the klipa... The klipa only has a minimal amount of energy in order to be in existence. But when, God forbid, a per- person perpetrates an act of evil, he gives them more energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a way, does Hashem make good and evil because he actually wants his, all his children That's 100%. To, to choose the right? And he, is that that, yes, that's it. That's exactly the crux of these chapters, is that Hashem created the possibility for evil so that we have freedom of choice and we choose to do the right thing. As to, it says, it says It is a, a burnt offering that is, brings pleasure to Hashem. And it says, it's, It is, it brings pleasure to me that I said, and you have done my will. When a person has the, the choice to do opposite of Hashem's will and he chooses to do Hashem's will, it brings delight to Hashem. Wouldn't it bring such delight if we didn't have a choice? The fact that we have a choice means it brings us delight. So if a person doesn't know what's right or wrong, mm-hmm. they don't have a, 
So it, it's does it still affect the klipah? It does. It does. It does. Not in the same way. Yeah. Of course, it's a much greater energy if there's more evil in the act. But when we learn chapter eight, we um, we had the example of what if somebody ate food thinking it was kosher, and he had good intentions when he ate this food. He was thinking, you know, I'm eating this food in order to serve Hashem. And not only that, after he ate the food, he then went and served Hashem with the energy that he got from the food. Is the energy then elevated? No. That still remains bound up in the klipa because at the end of the day, this is the example that Rabbi Steinsalz gives. Even if they didn't gives. know it's Yeah, even if they didn't know. The example that Rabbi Steinsalz gives is they have to do teshuva in order to release the, the energy they have to do teshuva. What if a person wanted to drink a very healthful drink and he didn't know that there was poison in it and then he drank it? He was blameless. He was trying to be healthy. But he, in the end of the day, he poisoned himself. And that's what happens if, God forbid, a person does a sin, not knowingly, he contaminates himself. He has to do teshuva for that. But it's a totally different, a totally different level. That's like, you know, and Hashem, Hashem, you know, orchestrates things just so. Hashem is the most fierce. Hashem is the most good. And he doesn't, he's not looking to find fault. And Hashem judges things not in the way we judge things. And so, but for us as people, we have to know what we need to do teshuva for. So a person says, well, I did it by accident. I don't have to do teshuva. That is not correct. You did it by accident. You still have to do teshuva. Thank you so much.